Hello, Tommy. Hello, Ken. Thanks for being here, man. I'm so excited that we're doing this. We've had many conversations and I think that we are getting closer and closer to aligning our intentions, incentives, and actions in a way that is collaboratively manifestive. And this podcast episode is going to be a free flow where we both, you know, explore what we're doing, where we're heading, and how we can align those things so that we can really start contributing to these you know, grand, beautiful ambitions we have. And there are so many parallels to what we're doing, how we approach our work and our process, but also so many distinct differences that really allow us to tap into this network effect. And now we have the power of generative AI technology helping us to further amplify, maximize, and optimize our flow so that we can greater leverage our innate skills, capacities, ideas, and interests in a way that creates something frictionless, a frictionless expression of our cognitive exploration. Mm -hmm. I think AI is a really good place to just start as a discussion as far as how it can be supplementary to our minds and our brains and our bodies in the sense that there are a lot of theories now in neuroscience, um, namely the anarchic brain hypothesis and the entropic brain theory that were hypothesized and very difficult to study, but they're centered around the idea that our brain generates electrical impulses spontaneously and there's no kind of center for who decides what there's modulatory mechanisms that influence right so you have dopamine for example that can either increase our likelihood to move or decrease our likelihood to move and when i say move i mean musculature whether that's a musculature of our mouth to speak right whether we're inhibiting what we're about to say or whether we're trying to make it it go quicker or, or more energy is going into that. And these theories centered around the idea that our brain often is spontaneously firing, like the nature of a thought can be directed, but can also just appear out of thin air. And drawing from that prayer that we just were, was generated from AI and how solitude and silence is the essence of creativity because that spontaneous nature of ideas and insights is now being studied and is hypothesized so having something like ai where we have these spontaneous thoughts like we have you know things to put our thoughts into like we can write down which is an amazing invention in and of itself that we can just record and write and have language to express and to communicate with others and ourselves and then have technology and computers and all these types of things to let out what our mind produces and now we have ai which is like we can have so many random unstructured ideas and thoughts dumping into one place 
And now we can click a button and say, can you make sense of all this and give me something to do? <laughs> and it just feeds it almost too perfectly. And it's going to improve, which is a scary thought. But it's an exciting time for our minds and brains in the sense of we don't have to stress too much because, you know, especially during meditation, right? You have these amazing thoughts. Sometimes obviously there's dark thoughts and all kinds of different emotions and thoughts, but you have these really innovative ideas during a meditation session, for example, and you're like, I need to hold on to this, right? I need to put this down somewhere and work on this. And that kind of entropy, that randomness needs an avenue to go towards. And we don't necessarily have the computing power or even the internal resources to do that ourselves subconsciously or consciously a lot of us really need to put that conscious effort in to actually make sense of all the things that we're thinking about and and map out our emotions but i think ai is gonna really help that in a lot of ways both in like you know therapy and, and healing we'll need some healing in our lives Thing we're all carrying onto something there's emotional residue from everywhere we go so it's an exciting time you're right because even you know in those moments you might have these these conceptual insights in meditation that are themselves very seductive but also quite disruptive because Firstly, we can come to expect those insights. And so we sit down and we're like, well, hang on. I mean, sitting here, where is the brilliancy? Where is the genius? Where, where is this? Why isn't the source giving me good ideas to go work on? But then if we do get those ideas, it is another you know, potential barrier to the deeper experiential insight of Vipassana. And so we have these stages of meditation where one of those stages is intellectual insights, concepts, ideas given to you. And in those moments, you have to decide, do I direct conscious resources to this and thus take myself out of meditation because I'm now actively allowing this idea to continue unfolding? Or do I recognize that this is another hurdle to move through or to allow to pass so that I can go deeper into where these ideas are actually coming from rather than getting stuck analyzing the contents of these thoughts can i sink deeper and deeper into the stage from which these thoughts are actually emerging and be connected to this this deep pool of inspiration and source and beingness and i think that you know going into our meditations you know having that intention you know, is my intention to actually sit down and allow these ideas to come up? My intention to allow the space for my subconscious to roam and create these new connections that I may utilize in my day-to-day -day actions? Or is my intention to go deeper? And if my intention is to go deeper, then when I come across those insights, it's allowing those to come up so that they can go out as well and continuing to go deeper into that state of mind and that state of being. And when it comes to AI and how we can utilize it with these things 
AI gives us the opportunity to become multimodal in our expression of that creativity. So rather than being stuck with the attachments and identifications with certain creative outlets, like I am a writer, I am a photographer, I am this, I am that. It's like, maybe you are none of those things. Those are simply means of expression for the innate creativity that we all have. And by identifying where these attachments and identifications exist, we can let go of holding onto those things so tightly and allow ourselves to become more liberated in that expression. Because creativity is one thing, but we get quite attached and stuck in the actual means of expression for that creativity. And then when something like AI comes along, which is extremely disruptive and certainly can automate and take over a lot of the mechanical tasks within that creative expression, a lot of us will come to this place of like, all right, well, then what am I actually here for? What am I doing? And if we are attached to the doing, then we are entering this, you know, this kind of fear-based scarcity state because when we are attached to the doing and the doing gets done by something else, then we go, well, where am I? What am I to do? Like, well, you are creativity itself. You are the essence of all of this. Those are just tools for expressing your creativity. And if you can liberate yourself from those attachments, you can use this technology in a way that really serves you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the idea of not having to hold on every thought, no matter how good it may be. Because one of the most frustrating things that I found when I did 10 day Vipassana was the fact that we weren't allowed to read or write anything. It was just absolute total immersion. And there was just so many times where I'm like, like tried so hard to remember an idea that I came up. So there's, you know, sittings in the hall with everyone where you have to stay for the entire hour, which is, you know, very standard. There's three sessions throughout the day where you're in the hall with everyone, no matter what. And then you have the option to either meditate in your room or, or in the hall throughout other periods of the day. And during the periods of the hall was often when I would have these beautiful insights expressed in, you know, language. And I would be in the meditation and then it would just come up while, you know, whether focusing on the breath or the body or whatever it may be. And I would be like, okay, if I just think about this like three or four more times over, it should stick in memory, right? It should, it should just stay there. And so you're like thinking about the same idea and then repeat it and then repeat it and say, all right, now we go back to meditation. <laughs> it didn't work <laughs> because you're in there for 10 days and it just... Yeah, I mean, other realizations obviously persisted, but uh, there were there were there were many that you just have to let go of because not every beautiful idea has to change us. Mm. We don't have to do anything necessarily with anything that comes up in our in our thought pattern, which is a beautiful space to be in, right? It's it's just that allowing that letting go, as you mentioned, and what I'm alluding to is. The idea that it's just this passage flow where you can grab them and you hold them there for a bit and you're like, that's cool. And let it go. It might come back around. It might not. And the might not is the threat. Mm. But 
ultimately it's a matter of trusting the rest. And also, you know, whether we are perceiving these thoughts and insights through a lens of abundance or scarcity, because if we're looking at it through scarcity of like, well, no, this is a really good thought. I can't let this go. I have to remember this as if we're not going to have another one, as if it's not the overall collective of all of these thoughts contributing to the network of a, you know, evolution in psyche and evolution in insight and evolution in where this is all coming from. And like recognizing that experiencing those thoughts more consistently and allowing them to emerge and allowing them to pass really facilitates the cultivation of a foundation for those thoughts that is more persistent than holding on to the individual thoughts themselves with an abundance mindset. It's like, Oh, that's a great thought. I'll have more of those. Mm. I don't need to and hold I think on to one. a thought as well. Most people think of a thought as language, right? It's us talking to ourselves or about something, but most of us don't think of thoughts as the actual feeling of what that is, because it's like we have these stored phrases and thought patterns and each of them have a, a correlated state of mind, right? We, we think of that thought and we're inspired. We feel inspiration. There's a certain neural energy of like, yes, that. And then other thoughts in language come to mind. You know, we're thinking about the actual makeup of a sentence and then that sentence and creates meaning and the meaning is the narrative and then it's the narrative that provides the emotion but we just separate the emotion and the language of it and just think of we need to memorize this entire sentence or phrase and every detail of it whereas all we really have to pay attention to is the feeling mm. tone of the thought and it's that that can be remembered. It's like, well, no, how did I feel when I had that thought? And it's like, oh, I felt inspired. Well, why did I feel inspired? It's like, oh yeah, because I, A, B, C, D, E. So I think during that meditation, it's not necessarily just pushing it aside, but it's really noticing the embodiment of the thought. How's your body and your mind feel in response to that thought? And that's what you need to remember. And that's easy to remember because it's, it's not a fucking sentence. It's just a, it's a feeling tone. And with most of the feelings that we've had of feelings we've had before, and it's just a matter of coming back to that and then figuring out what, uh, selection of thoughts get me there. I'm really glad that you brought this up because this is a, I think a critical thing to really understand is that when you are presented with a line of thinking instead of analyzing dissecting and going deeper on the contents of those thoughts placing your attention instead on the emotional correlates of those thoughts where those thoughts exist in the body what feelings what energetic composition is present in the body and you know, this is particularly useful for experiencing you know negative thought patterns, negative lines of thinking, disempowering lines of thought. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the contents of those thoughts. It's like we have a, uh, an energetic composition that is lending itself to negative thoughts. And then we have the thoughts come up with the storylines of like, well, I feel negative because 
so-and-so isn't getting back to me or I'm stressed about work. I'm not really feeling fulfilled in what I'm doing. I don't have any purpose. It's like it kind of devolves into this um, symbolic interpretation of thoughts. And then we take those thoughts as the arbiters of truth. Whereas if we were to change our state in that moment, recognize, ah, there's some storytelling occurring here. Storytelling that isn't lifting me up, that isn't empowering me, that isn't giving me a wider, broader, deeper perspective that contributes to the context of this experience. This is a negative line of thought that is almost linear in its emergence. It takes us deeper into one direction. And that one direction could be labeled because the brain does plenty of labeling as it's doing the storytelling as good or bad. And we can get stuck in that space. Whereas if you can recognize, hey, that's a story that that brain is telling a story right now. I know what to do here. I got to change how I feel. And people go, well, how do you change how you feel? There's many ways. We have a vastly interconnected and highly accessible pharmacy within us that can be activated, engaged, and unlocked by engaging with activities, behaviors, and processes that elicit a certain state of body. And that state of body completely alters the state of mind. Well, I've been a big believer in movement informs emotion. And movement, not just physically, but also physically moving your body, which is the movement of thought, movement of emotion in your mind. How it's just this vast landscape of possible states and whatever we decide to pick up at any one time creates a state. And then we get offended about it. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not personal, man. It's just, you know, what you've done your entire life up until this point just happened to be in a position where this is the randomness that we've acquired. And this is the selection of different uh, areas that we'd like to activate at this particular time. And you are the receiver of that information. And it's nothing personal. You want to change it? Sure. Do something else. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> like our, our reality kind of takes the shape of our conscious state. Uh, reality, like water, takes the shape of whatever it is poured into. And so what is it being poured into? What shape is your mind? And that shape of your mind is influenced by the shapes of your body. When we are rigid and brittle and unyielding and stiff in our bodies, the same thing occurs in our minds. We have less softness. And I think softness is a really powerful you know, intention to adopt in the mind because instead of information of reality, phenomena, stimuli being perceived through the right angles of an office chair, and the right angles of a room, you know, with its straight walls and sharp lines, our perception of reality can often take that shape. And when we go and make shapes with our body, literally stretching out our nervous system, stretching out our brain, we create more space for that information to come in in a softer way, a way that is a, a more gentle perception, you know, making contact with reality via a blanket instead of a needle. And how much strength it takes to soften as well. Like we have these um, you know, psychological tools, let's call them, like acceptance, surrender, 
softening devotion and these exist as intellectual concepts in the mind until brought into some kind of physical practice that creates the emotional correlates in the body right like when you are in a particularly challenging yoga class and you're you're grimacing and you're clenching your teeth and your jaw and you're not breathing very well and then the teacher goes soften breathe relax your jaw let the tongue fall from the roof of your mouth relax your brow relax your forehead soften your neck and suddenly you are in this position of you know maybe almost distress and pain and then you can invite softness and a smile into that place and the idea of softening and surrendering becomes a very literal visceral mode of enhancing your ability to interact with this physical interface and it takes energy to change state yeah i've been thinking about this a lot lately i don't think i've exploded on the podcast yet because it's been still pretty half-baked in my mind i might have already said it but i don't think so that the different states of consciousness slash states of mind all have their own quality of energy and their own amount of directable conscious energy. So for example, the state of consciousness that would be apathy has a certain quality of energy that is difficult to muster, difficult to wrangle, and a fairly low amount of directable energy. Um, and then something like shame and guilt, they have certain qualities to their energy, and they have a certain amount of conscious directable energy. And then moving up to something like uh, anger. Anger has way more energy than fear, than, than guilt or shame. But the quality of anger's energy is very difficult to direct in a conscious manner. And then the state of consciousness that might be courage, willingness, um, openness, they have more directable energy and the quality of those energies are more malleable to your intention. And then going up to something like joy and love, which have massive amounts of directable energy and the quality of that energy is quite easy to work with. And so understanding that our state of mind, that is determining how much energy we have available to us to be directed and it is determining the quality of that energy and thus the quality and scope of our perception and thus awareness and by recognizing and asking ourselves what is my current state of mind what is my current state of body we can really tune into the emotional roadmap that takes us to where we are so that we can figure out how to best use the energy that we have if you are in a state of shame or guilt or fear, yeah, it's going to be more difficult to get up and go to that yoga class, to get up and go do that thing that feels good, that real self-love oriented activity. So understanding that we can have a variety of things that we can access and engage in that change depending on what state of mind and body we're in. Basically having a bare minimum best for when we feel our worst all the way up to our absolute best for when we feel on top of the world and using that as a way to really consciously shapeshift.
Mm. Yeah, I really like the idea of limbic friction too. Um, again, another Andrew Huberman uh, coined term, but limbic system being one of the earliest developed systems in our brain generally is involved in setting the overall state and has structures like the amygdala and, and other areas, but the the state of the likelihood of certain things to be active and certain other things to be inactive and how you were describing all of these different emotional patterns, the quality versus the, the essence of them and like the energy within them and how our body feels and resonates in response to them reminded me of a book. I'm not sure you might be familiar with it. Uh, Power versus Force. Mm. I think David Hawkins is his name. Yeah. Um, really abstract, I would say, book. It took me a while to just like fully embrace into the book because it was very like, this is how it is. This is what this is. This is consciousness. This is that in, in obviously a much more uh, beautiful way than that. But it was, there was a book that took me a long time to like agree with. There was a lot of resistance to the direct nature of how we narrated or how we wrote. But the whole idea around power versus force is that there are like, there's this power within us that has the ability to like spontaneously create beautiful moments, but there's also darkness within us that has the ability to override that and force when we behave in response to anger, when we behave in response to a quote unquote negative emotion. And then our whole life is based around fear of preventing certain things to come up as our reactions to those. And obviously it's hard to really pinpoint a roadmap as to well, what, when was the first time someone was angry to then go on and do this to cover it up for the rest of his or her life is hard to pinpoint. But I think when we are reacting and moving and behaving in response to a angry stimuli, whether created internally or externally is going to eventuate in this forceful behavior on us that is in our internal realism, I suppose, for the lack of a better term. But I think recognizing when there's power versus when there's force mm -hmm. acting upon us and how we frame that and he had like this, all of these different words like joy and love. And he tried to describe this technique of how to measure the level of consciousness that was embodied in that certain emotion or state. And he had like this kind of this hierarchy of like, this is a zero or this is a 10 and this was a, a thousand and love is, you know, 2000. I can't remember the exact numbers, but then it was, it was really hard for me to just like, agree with it. I'm like, how are you quantifying all of these abstract thoughts and emotions in like this hierarchy of this is better than that. And that's better than this. So it's hard to ag agree with a lot of the things he was saying, but certainly that power versus force. And when there's 
resentment or this fear that's driving behaviors is when it's just eating away at you because you just every time you're reacting and and letting it change your behavior you're just feeding it just like you just keep feeding it's just going to grow and grow and grow and eventually you won't even know how it started how and why you're watering it but you just know that it's a reinforcing thing it's this emotion comes up this is my reaction it's just like this learned behavior and reaction to a certain emotion but then in something like love and inspiration and power it's a lot more ring in its capacity it's not necessarily directional it doesn't want to cover itself up it's expansive and when in meditation and recognizing both sides of this because it's not like we have to delete every bad reaction that we've ever had they're going to keep coming probably mm. for the rest of our lives we would safely assume mm-hmm. in different degrees of intensity and duration and all these kind of things but what will dictate the intensity and duration is obviously what we do about when they come up mm. are we framing it in a way that's just i need to you know oh, here's my oh here's that bad thing that's inside of me that i need to act upon and do something it's like well you know do you need to act upon maybe you do maybe not but having that repertoire of options how can you move your body can you expose yourself to cold can you go exercise can you go for a run other other ways of not masking the pain that you are in but acknowledging it and not feeding it just changing your state if you need to do something in the afternoon but you feel so much anger and resentment that you don't want to do it or for whatever other reason there is emotional residue whether it's relationship or literally anything that you need to have these practices in place that you know will shift your state of mind in a way that is expansive and can create love or create inspiration and i think that that whole idea around limbic friction is to recognize when states don't meet what you want to do intentionally and having the practices that will shift your state so that you do feel in a state to do the tasks that you need to do mm-hmm. the power practice right like i you know I've, I've been identifying trying to identify more whether my you know current actions reactions and responses are driven by force or by power and you know example would be you know, stressing or oh, I haven't got this week's newsletter out. I really need to write this newsletter. I got to get it out on time. Hopefully I make a sale from it. That's force. It's a lot of external motivation, you know, guilt driven, fear driven. I need to make the sale. I need to get this thing done. It's all externally based and it's forcing the words out onto paper instead of power, which is patience and saying, Hey buddy, you got everything you need. All of your needs are taken care of. You can be patient, you can be thoughtful, you can be slow, you can be deliberate, and you can really enjoy this process. What is it that you are doing here? Are you giving or getting? Giving is power. Getting can be force. Patience is power. Impatience is force. Reactivity is force. Responsiveness is power. 
and that power really does come from the space between those thoughts and the space between a stimulus and the response. If we can enhance that space, we can choose to derive power from that space, which informs our next action instead of a never-ending series of reactions, which forces us into a trajectory and direction in life that is not of our conscious choosing. Makes me think of in the neuroscientific context and what drives us to take action. I'm currently writing a piece called The Neurobiological Mechanisms That Drive Action or Our Motivating Forces of Behavior. And just as I was alluding to earlier around changing your internal state, whether that's moving your body, exposing yourself to various temperatures and how that changes how we feel. And I'm just thinking about, we've spoken a little bit about this before and what makes us behave in certain ways, like these internal changes, right? Our, our body's always trying to maintain homeostasis. And when it's out of balance, you need to get it back into balance. So hypothalamus, which is, you know, is controlling temperature and um, so many different things within our blood and our, and our brain, measuring so many different things. And when the osmolality of a cell, like the, I guess the, the hydration of a cell changes, it recognizes that. And then, you know, whether it's, let's say it's dehydration, and then it will change the state of the rest of your brain to accommodate, to change that internal state. So, okay, I'm dehydrated. What does my body and brain need to do now? How does it need to behave in a way that's going to set this osmolality of the cell back into balance because it's, you know, measuring hydration. Hydration is obviously critical considering how much we are made up of water and how water allows things to move more freely within our body and brain and etc. So by changing the contour of a hypothalamus, we can change our state very, very quickly. It's measuring temperature. When temperature drops, hypothalamus will recognize that and change our bodily function in a way that produces heat, whether that's shivering or whether it's, you know, mitochondrial based and brown adipose tissue or whatever mechanism it decides, or it generally does a combination of all of those things, or when we're exposing ourselves to really cold temperatures, it recognizes that and wants to, you know, heat our body up or vice versa. Having that to change our internal state is such a beautiful thing. And now that we have access to things like cold exposure and, and we know, you know, breath work, for example, changes the level of carbon dioxide, which is incredibly tightly regulated by not only the hypothalamus, but regions in, in the brainstem. And, you know, the brainstem being something that is like this conscious, but also subconscious area that's, you know, modulating our breathing constantly and how we can access that through conscious breath. But linking this, I guess, all back to the things that can change our behavior and recognizing what's force and, and what is power and not always having to react to what's happening internally. I think a, a, a really good thing to be able to practice is even something like hunger, right? We, we get really hungry at particular times or we're really hungry because we actually don't have energy within a cell and that's driving the hunger. And then the hunger is recognized by 
something like the hypothalamus, among other things, and will change our behavior in a way that is foraging for food. It scans the environment. It will, you know, make us move our body in a way that's looking for food or walk to the pantry or, or whatever we might be doing it at any one time. And that's, that's a motivating force. And so these motivating forces can be good, can be bad, but we don't have to frame them as good or bad and we don't have to react to them every single time, but they're nonetheless forces that act upon us. And we have hunger, hunger, we have a drive, we change our behavior, we move to change that internal state back to what it was. But we can also just recognize it as a force inside of us. And this is, it, it's easy to discuss in the context of hunger because it's very relevant to everyone. Everyone's going to experience hunger and, and feel that internal driving force. But then in the context of a negative emotion where it's a bit more abstract, but nonetheless, it's a driving force inside of us. And we're trying to counteract that driving force because it changed the contour of our state of mind. And now we're trying to change it back. And that's the motivating force behind anger. It's like, okay, here's the insecurity that's built up. The body's then like, and the brain is then like, what do I need to do to get rid of this? I need to go back to the state that I was in. And it's foraging and scrambling around. It doesn't know what to do because it's such an abstract thought or pattern of sentences and or phrases that we've told ourselves about the narrative of our life. And here we are experiencing this emotion and we're like, whoa, where the hell did that come from? Why am I feeling this? What do I need to do about this now? And you just get stuck. But it's like, well, actually, you don't have to do anything. It's another motivating force that's kind of built up and driven up. It's like this bottom-up processing in, in neuroscience. There's a lot of discussion about top-down and bottom-up processing and these spont spontaneous firing and creating these internal states that are good or bad, however we frame them. And that's like bottom-up processing, like the, the senses are going up to the cortical regions and we're experiencing that. Whereas top-down is more like we're actively pushing that away or we can embrace it and we are forcefully moving our body and, ch and changing our behavior in a way that will change that internal state. So, yeah, that's when certain practices are available to us. And now that there's wonderful research in all of these spaces, and obviously you don't need the research to understand that certain things we do change our internal state and, and having, having options when these motivating forces within us want to pursue change. And that those options that we have, can we really be boiled down to stop, go? Do I go with this urge? Hungry. Am I going to go and scrummage around in the fridge and, you know, find myself a snack, even though it's 948 PM and I want to be in bed by 10 and I'll spend the next three hours digesting this? Or do I go, no, stop. I actually don't need to eat right now. These are just some late night munchies. I can go to sleep and literally forget about this hunger and wake up with a new option. If I have a craving for anything, really, now how am I framing this craving? Is this force that is being exerted in me, through me? Is this a force that is going to enable a state of mind, a state of body, a state of being that I want to participate in, that I want to be involved with? Or is this going to potentially 
perpetuate a state that I do not want to be in. We have stop, we have go, we have avoid, we have ascend. And recognizing that the power is in the ascension, often when we are greeted with that internal force, our ability to stop is in itself the ascension. It's the movement through non-movement. It's the action through non-action. And sometimes that non-action provides us the greatest momentum. The non-movement gives us the impetus to move towards these greater goals. And the more we can recognize those internal forces that come up that are just habituated patterns, and we can decide not to go, which is also related to dopamine, is not just go, it's also stop. Our ability to not engage in the pattern that is just emerged in front of us, our ability to choose consciously how we are going to interact with this opportunity that has emerged in this moment. And then being able to develop a bit of a pattern of execution, a habit of positive impulsivity, where when we are greeted with the internal force or motivation to, hey, you should go for a walk. It's like, how quickly can I act and go with that before the justifications and cognitive reasonings for not engaging in that thing inevitably take away my drive to do so? It's like, hey, I should go to this class. I should reach out to that person. We haven't talked in a while. If we do not act quickly on those positive forces, those positive powers, then we create the feedback loop, right? Because all of life is this never-ending feedback loop. And our life is really this compound interest demonstration of what we have stopped and what we have gone with. If we continue to go with the positive powers, then our life becomes a reflective, a reflection of that. Anytime you look at somebody who has, say, achieved a certain level of fitness and health, you know, maybe they're, they're sculpted and they look strong. That is the clear demonstration of a habit of go, a habit of acting on the power rather than the force. Because the only difference between the person who does not have that health and that fitness and that physique versus the person who does is how quickly the other person has acted on those positive impulses and has overcome that limbic friction, which is really overcoming the emotional and cognitive resistance we have towards engaging in something that may be beneficial. And every time we overcome that limbic friction, we ascend the emotional debris and symbology we have associated with that thing and get to engage with that new version of ourselves. Like our ideal, most fun, most favorite version of self is almost always on the other side of some limbic friction. Hmm. Hmm. And the beautiful thing about how our body reacts to that is like anything that we learn, there's also when we decide to change our internal state and do the thing, it's a reinforcing pattern in the sense that our brain, our body, and our self recognize when you aren't in the state, but you know you need to be in the state, it happens a lot more easily and readily. It's like, well, I've been here before and I've done this before. I've found a way to change my internal state. Let's do that again. And there's almost like this belief in 
the changing of the state, this underlying belief. It's hard to embody the belief when you're in that state because it's like, you know, you feel super tired when you wake up, but you really want to go to that yoga session first thing in the morning, but you're just like lying in bed and you're just like, this is so nice. And, you know, you're in that kind of residual subconscious state of coming out of sleep and you're just like, but it's so nice and warm in my bed and I don't really want to move right now. And then, you know, you're like, well, eventually I'm going to have to get out of bed and, you know, I may as well get out of bed now because I'll make this yoga session. And then you get up and just the act of getting up just changes the valence or the strength of that residual emotion a little bit less and just turns down. And every step in the direction of yoga in this example, just turns down the emotional residue of the previous. And it's not like you just change your state. It's a progressive embodiment change where it's like every step closer you get to the thing that you need to do is changing your internal state. It's like your your brain and body is predicting now what it needs to do. And you're mm-hmm. just in this transitional phase of letting go of the previous state and entering a new state and of course by actually doing the task even if you finally get there and you're still not quite there there's still that five ten minutes warm-up there's a warm-up with anything that we do right it's it's you, you get into the yoga session and you start on your back or child's pose or whatever and you know you're starting pretty slow connecting to breath and within like 10 to 15 minutes then you start really flowing and the energy starts flowing and now you change the your state has changed and you're there but you're not there until like 10 minutes into the task so there's this entire transitional phase where we have to recognize and understand and remember that when changing internal state it's it's a step-by-step process it's not just instant but it's just cueing the brain and body what it needs to be in in a certain period of time so it's just like okay right now i'm here that's where i need to be i don't feel like doing that right now but if i just start moving in that direction Mm. the body will respond and i will eventually come to a a state that will align with what i need to do but there is resistance at every step of the path but there's less and less resistance it's always the first step always isn't it Mm. it's always just like just take just get out of bed just get out of bed and and not uh allowing the mind to get embroiled in thinking its way through the entire process of that state change you know being present with each step you know if you wake up and it's early and you want to get to this class but you're in that comfort of the bed and your mind is thinking about the contrast between where you are and where you said you were going to be the mind is contrasting and juxtaposing your current comfort with the inevitable discomfort of that class, therefore amplifying that limbic friction and providing you a greater barrier to move through. Whereas if you can recognize quickly, be aware of your mind going through the cognitive example of a physical experiential process, you can say, hey, mind, stop thinking about how much effort it's going to be because that's not your responsibility brother your responsibility is to put one foot in front of the other being present get me to the mat get me in the car get me to class get me to the mat and then you can chill out because the body will take it from there 
you might, you know, step in and give some pep talk here and there, remind the body to surrender, remind the body to soften, remind the body to breathe, but the body will handle this. So be where you are and stop thinking so far ahead that you get stuck thinking about the effort, which your brain cannot tell the difference between effort it's thinking about and effort the body is engaging in. That's all effort mm. to the brain. Mm. And I think, I mean, in neuroscience, movement is called the final common path because all of these internal states need to eventuate into movement to change that internal state. We're going to have to do something eventually. We're going to have to move in a way. We're going to have to forage for food. We're going to have to drink that water. We're going to have to breathe. Breathing's movement. And someone just freaking sent me a text and it just interrupted my train of thought. That was like, that was like, I was like, ignore it. Just keep going. But then just like me telling myself to ignore it was just like, <laughs> I sent that text. <laughs> Oh, you did. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, I thought I was on do it still. I texted you. I got five minutes left to not address you. <laughs> well, you fucked that, didn't you? Uh, um, <laughs> internal state. Classic brain. <laughs> oh, what a hilarious and perfect example. That it doesn't matter that. how much you know, the brain is still going to do brain stuff, dude. Like, yeah. It's literally ignore it. You'll be fine. It's, uh, I read it and it's done. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. Keep going with what you were doing. And then it's just like, uh, what what was I doing? <laughs> maybe uh, maybe for our next episode we'll discuss attention and distraction. Mm, I think yeah, attention and distraction is, is a very good point because I think as a skill of focus, more of a skill to focus is about recognizing that you're going to distract yourself and coming back. Right, focus is not just about distraction-free concentration. It's about having distractions and being able to come back to task because of what we were just alluding to before about that, the emotional feeling behind what you were doing before. Like I was talking, being inspired, I was, you know, energy was there and then bang, I got distracted. And that shift, the emotional shift of giving energy to then okay i'm receiving energy from something else and then coming back and it's like well you know you've lost that force or that that the, the driving force behind the action that you were you were taking so i think yeah attention and focus would be would be something to explore for sure and always it's it's uh it's evergreen because we will always be distracted and i think really that is the first part of getting better control over our attention is being radically honest about how distractible we are and then not having any expectation that we should be these perfect conduits of attention, but that we are this roaming bundle of billions of neurons all receiving stimuli and the data and information of reality at all times and that you can mitigate distractions very well. You know, the simple thing is, 
having your phone on do not disturb and having it out of the room, having, you know, removing those more concrete and tangible distractions so that when the brain inevitably distracts itself because it's received some piece of information that we're not consciously aware of, we can recalibrate and reorient our attention without getting so pulled into that new line of thinking. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, dude, this about wraps us up for today. I got to go and do my regular job. <laughs> Tommy, where can people find you? Right here. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always where I am. Uh, where can people find me? Um, yeah, I, I, I need to be more active on social media, but I've I've tried so many times to will myself into it, and I think I will find eventually that I'll fully embrace it and figure out how to how to use it. Um, but I mean, I'm on Instagram, Tommy I More, uh, very inactively. More so on. You're really selling it. Really selling it, yeah. I mean, like, it, but it's not about me, though, is it? It's about what we're chatting about. So yeah. I don't really care what <laughs> people do because <laughs> they're not going to find much anyway. But um, working on Health Project, uh, the Inside Guide. So that is a space that I will continue to add to a lot more. So the inside guide, I think it's the underscore inside underscore guide on Instagram. Well, I'll drop all the links in the description below for anybody who wants to continue engaging with the brilliancy of your neural presentation. And we will do this again probably next week or the week after, and then we'll keep doing it. And you guys can keep listening to it and um, let us know what you think. If you enjoyed today's episode, stick. Uh, leave a review five stars please if you disagree with everything we've said please we'd love to hear it <laughs> um, my dad would always say at the end of the whitewater raft trips uh if you guys had a good trip today please let everyone know tell your friends tell your family leave us a review and if you didn't have a good time keep your mouth shut <laughs>